We can talk out here. Okay. What does she? What does your wife think we're doing out here in the garage for an hour? I told her we were going to lift weights, so we should probably lift weights because you can hear the weights in the kitchen. Dad, mom said dinner forty-five minutes. Okay, thanks, girls. Cool, forty-five minutes. We can do legs. You got to go on that duck hunt, John. Everyone gets drunk. There's camaraderie. Everyone relaxes. Go. When Leslie back? Can I tell you something? Honestly, you kind of suck at piping. And if you're going to suck at piping and also not shoot birds, you're not going to be a McMillan man. You have to go on that duck hunt. That's the way I see it. Well, hello and welcome to another edition of McMillan Men. This is the show where we talk about the Amazon Prime show Patriot. My name is Luke Burbank. Right over there is my good friend and fellow Patriot enthusiast, Andrew Walsh. Hey there. Hello. I like thinking of myself as a McMillan man. I don't usually think of myself in manly terms, so this is all new and exciting for me. We picked that name, I think, because like any great cover band, like let's say you're a Rolling Stones cover band, you you have to call yourself something that Wild is horses. an inside Sorry. reference, right? Or like uh, Shattered, <laughs> or Shattered, which was right? a, that's a real one. Right? Which was a that was a band that played my cousin's uh, husband's birthday in Warminster, Pennsylvania, once in their backyard. Did a bang up job of tumbling dice but you know you've got to pick a name that is kind of like people in the know understand that you're being sly mm-hmm. like we didn't call this a patriot podcast or the podcast about patriot we call it mcmillan men because we're trying to be mcmillan men that being said i don't know if i want to be a mcmillan man yeah <laughs> that's true as we heard in that like, tape i don't know anything about piping and i don't want to shoot birds i guess i'm not a mcmillan I don't man sh- i don't want to shoot i don't want to shoot ducks i don't want to have to cozy up to leslie uh, Claret, even though I do find him to be a sort of uh, tragic character who has his who who has his kind of uh, I guess you could say positive sides. But anyway, uh, we're talking this week about episode three from season one, the very appropriately named McMillan Man. It's the episode where uh, we find out a lot about the backstory of Leslie Claret and why it is that he has the job he has at McMillan. Uh, and, uh, of course, John's character is getting further and further away from the travel team and getting to go back to uh, Luxembourg and do his thing. And uh, let's see, what else is going on? Um, well, a whole bunch of things. Agath is uh, making her way around Chicago and Rochambeauing cross-continentally. Anyway, a lot going on in this episode, Andrew. You and I talking before we started recording. We both have copious notes Um, where do we start with this? I think we should probably start with Leslie's backstory, right? Because the first time I watched this, um, I, and I assume most other viewers, um, assumed that he was the big boss, that he was in charge of everything. Rewatching the first two episodes as we started this podcast, there were clues that that was not the case and it, it was never explicit, but we just assumed, oh yeah, he's... You know, he's the big swinging Leslie. He must be running the place. And we find out not only is he not running the place, but that he used to run the place. He started the company when he was in his 
early 20s, but then he had a uh, pretty tragic uh, slide to the bottom. What do you call it in, in AA when you, uh, hit, you hit bottom? Clearly, he hit bottom. Rock bottom. Rock bottom. And we get all this backstory that in the course of the first 10 minutes of this episode casts an entirely different light on his character, which is both it, it, so many things click into place. Starting with why a parking spot is so important to him, as it was in the last episode. Now, here's something. I've watched this episode, I'll say, two and a half times. I watched it when I initially watched season one. I rewatched it last night. And then, a few minutes ago, I was kind of just cruising through it again to make sure I was remembering everything. Somehow in all of that, I don't think I understood that Leslie was one of the co-founders of Macmillan. Yes, most definitely. I thought... I thought I, – I, I got that he had co-founded a very successful piping company and then his, uh, his, his cocaine uh, affection, uh, whereas we are patriot enthusiasts, he is a cocaine enthusiast. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that got him – you know, led to embezzlement and uh, various sexual uh, issues uh, and then him you know, basically hitting rock bottom. That was McMillan. I don't think I figured that part out. Yeah, that's what he did. And he says at one point, I want to say it's during his like AA style meeting that he started when he was 24 years old. And then he, of course, lost his job when he started embezzling from his own company, presumably to feed his cocaine habit. And um, then, of course, and, and to those who were, um, you know, kind of watching along with us and only at uh, uh, episode three, I I I want to point out, too, we see a brief, brief glimpse of his interaction with his son. That's how the episode begins with a very kind of um, tense Thanksgiving dinner or whatever it is. To say the least, I believe the very first shot is him strangling or like kind of on top of his son on Thanksgiving violently. That doesn't happen in your house. No, it does. But I'm just saying it's very Uh uh, real to life. But you know what I was thinking? It's nice to see it on the on the big screen. You feel like (laughs) your life is being reflected. Exactly. I get that. Um, I'm actually this is a dumb place for me to say this. I regret starting the sentence, but I guess I have to finish it. (laughs) One thing that I want to say is um, as we go forward and we look at the relationship between him and his son, which will pop up down the line some more. Remember a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned that it it almost seems like Leslie is kryptonite to John. John can be very Mm -hmm. effective at a lot of things, but somehow he just always says the wrong thing. Like somehow Leslie has this power over him to just always bring out the worst in John. I think we're going to find that Leslie's son is like that kryptonite Mm -hmm. to Leslie, right? We only saw Uh a little brief glimpse of it, and clearly Leslie is in the wrong. He's presumably coked up and strangling his son at the holidays. But as time goes on and he tries to reconnect with his son, I was reminded like, oh, yeah, it's like Leslie, who's the the kryptonite to John. He's got his own kryptonite, and it's in the family. I think we all do, right? And that's probably one of the... Subtle themes of the show. I will say this at the risk of, you know, we do this other podcast, TBTL. Many of the folks listening to us right now also listen to that show. Um, And so I don't know this. I don't know if I would say this on that show. And yet uh, it's not like this is we're in such a faraway neighborhood that it's not going to be heard by that same listener group. But let me just put it this way. His description in whatever his group meeting is, uh, presumably AA or whatever. His description of what it feels like to do cocaine is, let's just say, spot on. (laughs) Written by somebody who's clearly done some cocaine in their time, because that is 
Uh, that is uh, that is exactly what it what it feels like, and I'd never thought of it in those terms. But I was like, "Yeah, makes sense." Story checks out. He describes one it of the as many feeling little... like you're winning all the time. It's like the feeling of of winning all the time. I remember he said that, and also that like well, he says winning a significant amount of money. Oh, that's right. And that's yeah, the... he says that. Yeah. yeah, it's the exact same feeling as when if you're gambling. Uh, and you get, you know, you hit a big bonus hand or something, and that adrenaline is the same kind of feeling that one might have if one were to be dabbling in cocaine. Do you know what I noticed to, to move off? I'm going to take this into yeah, let's a do that. much let's move dork, it off of dorkier pros- Prosecutable admissions by me <laughs> and back to uh, the... The, the television show. This is a very weird thing to point out, but one thing that I noticed in this, because it starts with the flashback of Patri- uh, of Leslie, I should say, and um, I noticed that the flashback of Leslie at the beginning was letterboxed for some reason, and I was like, mm. this show isn't usually letterboxed, and I, and I just went back right now, and I noticed that the pre-credit flashback of episode two was letterboxed as well. So even though it probably has zero significance on the show, I'm always interested in knowing, like, why does a filmmaker or a um, I, I guess a TV maker decide to have certain parts of their show letterboxed and not others. So that is something I will be keeping an eye on. Am I starting with the interesting stuff, Luke? Yes, you are because I mean there are like you said this in the in the first episode of this show, and and it stuck with me, which is I think you said basically there are sort of no wasted details on this show. Um, there's so much thought behind everything that even the the formatting. Uh, probably means it's definitely an intentional choice, and and so the, you know there's some thought behind it. I I I love boring down on the weird details of this show because they again I get the sense that that somebody thought carefully about about each and every one of them. So uh, we find out that that Leslie's been through a lot, a lot. It's been his own doing, but now he is sort of you know trying to work his way back up. I guess the ladder at McMillan, and he very much know he very much feels. The shame of his lower station now, whether it's parking or whether it's having to show up on the um, the Denon account, the Denon project, where he feels embarrassed, obviously, that he's handling something at that level. Um, uh, by the way, uh, speaking of Leslie and John's interactions, uh, we sort of left C-19, the last episode, was a cliffhanger because we didn't know if John was going to park in Leslie's parking spot and get fired. And he starts to, and then he just full on just bull charges over the parking barrier and parks in another spot. My question to you, Andrew, is, is that because he realizes he's in C-19? Is that what happened there? Yes. Yes, I'm quite convinced of that. Okay. He just has this because remember he's a couple of things are leading up to him being kind of his mind is wandering. Um, he's listening to the audio tape that his wife Alice had sent him, and then suddenly the as as he's pulling into the parking lot, uh, the investigator gets in front of his car. Like his brain is on like at least two different things, and then he just yeah. absentmindedly. And again, I love how Leslie uh, points it out as he's watching this unfold, waiting for him to park in C19 so he can fire. Him. He's like, look at him just tuck up in there. What does he say? Like a moth to the flame or, or something like that. Just like he, he says he can't resist that C-19. And it's so true. Right. There's no reason for C-19 is not a better parking spot than C-18 or C-17. It's just like for some reason, John is just attracted to it like a magnet. But it does represent, I would say, some growth for John that at mm-hmm. least at some point he realizes – that he's in the wrong spot because honestly that's more bandwidth 
on that topic than he's really even been able to allocate right. <laughs> thus far in the show. Like the fact that even for one second, a flash went across his mind of like, oh, yeah, this is the wrong parking spot. That means that he's a little more rooted in the real world than we realize. Because I'm fully expecting the first time I watched this episode for him to just park there absentmindedly, get out and walk away. Because, again, he has such bigger fish to fry and bigger ducks to kill than uh, than this dumb parking space. Also, by the way, this episode, we, we kind of saw it last week when he's closing Stephen Chow's uh, laptop. <laughs> Yeah. But we get to see him really fucking with him here when Steven introduces himself as Eugene in the yes. elevator. Yes. And then you realize that, like, oh, my God, he's – and again, that we're starting to see that dynamic between uh, Steven and his, and Charlotte, or I guess Ali O'Donnell is her, the character's name, uh, his, his um, kind of therapy person. And she's very disappointed in him in the elevator when he introduces himself as Eugene. It's a real step um, back for us, Steve. Or yeah. It's a real step back for us, Steven. <laughs> Oh, my God. So withering when she says stuff like that to him. And then to know that he's just doing it because this damn dry erase board that John is is messing with him uh, over. So we got we sort of see that that plot developing. And then we have a scene, Andrew, that was referred to in a previous episode of our show because it was something that you were like, did I hallucinate this scene right. about the investigators in Luxembourg uh, headed by Agathe? Uh, trying to decide who was going to have to pick through what garbage from the hotel. So this scene did exist. The good news is you are not tripping balls. That was a real <laughs> thing, just not in the episode you were thinking it was it. No, for the record, I am tripping balls, but it doesn't yes. mean I was wrong about that. Yeah, because right. we we saw the scene in episode two where the investigators decide who's going to go through the kitchen trash from the hotel and who's going to go through the like um, room trash, the trash from the various guest rooms. And in episode two, there's no debate over who's going to go through which trash. And then I thought to myself, did they edit that? Like, since it's been on mm-hmm. on Amazon? Because that that's such an insignificant thing. Why, like, why would you take that out? It's so insignificant. Well, it's not insignificant. They re-show that scene again. They include the part where they're debating over who's going to go through which trash. And the significance is it's the first time Rochambeau, a.k.a. rock, paper, scissors, rears its head in the show, which is going to be a common theme. When this investigator has to, like, when she comes to loggerheads with someone, she will offer to play Rochambeau with them to figure out who's going who's gonna to win the day. I also think, now go with me here, I have a theory that I'm completely ready to throw away, but while there are a lot of odd characters in this TV show with all kinds of quirks, I feel like the introduction of Rochambeau takes us into a new level of, I'm going to say, surreality, um, Mm -hmm. because... For the most part, people are reacting in ways – they have their quirks, but people are reacting in ways that make sense in – basically in the world they're navigating. But when Agathe is in Chicago and she meets an American law enforcement official of some sort, probably working for the State Department or somehow you know, coordinating the the notices from Interpol – uh, she, the American says, I don't want to give you the orange ticket. Uh, Aget says, I need that orange ticket. I guess we're at loggerheads. Should we Rochambeau for it? 
And then the cops, basically, you see her, like, shrug her shoulders, like, yep, let's do it. And that's where the scene ends. And clearly, Aget won the Rochambeau. But my point for all of this, which is a lot of words, I apologize, is that we're living in a world where strangers just say that to each other as adults. And it's totally accepted. And for me, that was kind of that that's a new flower opening on this show. I have a question about Aget's strategy. Does she always go paper? Because the only scene that we've seen where she's doing it over who has to pick through what garbage, she goes paper each time, which is also my strategy because – and I will sometimes say I'm going to go paper every time to someone Mm -hmm. because then I think I'm in their head. I'm curious about her strategy, and I guess we'll see it as the the episodes uh, continue. We didn't see what her strategy was against the – the the you know security person in Chicago, but the one time we saw her do it, it's paper every time. You know, and I think that I uh, at an early age realized that paper is a winning strategy too. By the way, I don't know if we've ever talked about that before. But I, I why just, do you think paper is a winning strategy? Because I think that there's it covers rock. <laughs> because I think there's something about for the if you're especially if you're just doing one out of one instead of two out of three. I think most people, it feels unnatural to go to paper first. You're either wow. either going to go scissors or rock first. But there's something about throwing mm. down your fist, I feel yeah. like. And there's something about it. Now, I realize the thing is if they throw scissors first, you're in trouble. But I, I, I know how it works. But somehow I just – I feel like at an early age, I felt like everybody was just testing the water by throwing rock down first. And I remember being mm. in high school offering pe- to play paper, rock, scissors with people. But I would say only one round and I know I'll beat you. And it wow, you were like, I'm going to beta cuck them. <laughs> Actually, that's what I They're said. They're going to go rock. <laughs> I said, you want to play? Like, what are you talking about? It's 1992. We don't know what you're saying. You're like, no, this will make sense in 25 years. But you're going to come in all hard with rock, but I'm I'm going to just be beta cucking in the weeds. We called it beta cuck scissors, actually, is what we <laughs> called it in Ohio growing up. Rosham cuck. Um, oh, hey, it's gross. a different – it's not TBTL. It's a whole different podcast where we admit to drug use and knowing the word mm. beta cuck. Um, so uh, she does get the, uh, the orange – I kept trying to pause – and read the actual writing on that orange envelope. I could never quite get it paused right. But it's, you know, obviously some important uh, thing that she needs. And now they've been trying to keep her from getting it. The guy who's playing racquetball with uh, uh, with Tom Tavner, you know, they're, they're playing racquetball. And he says, you know, we've been making it hard on her to get this information. And, and we're going to continue doing that. And, of course, he then has... It's kind of funny to me that they put this into Patriot because the show is so genius. And maybe I almost – I give them so much credit. I I think it's almost like a meta joke that this guy dies playing racquetball because that's what happens in every movie. I wrote this on Twitter at some point. Racquetball is the leading cause of death amongst businessmen in movies, usually right after they've agreed to something that's really good for one of the characters in the movie. And that's when the guy keels over on a racquetball court. I didn't pick up on that. I didn't realize it was such a trope. I know that racquetball is often a trope in movies because I watched a lot of um, Woody Allen films. And I feel like in Woody mm-hmm. Allen films, they're always in some sort of like a, a, a you know, like a club, some sort of a racket club. Right. And they're doing squash. That. Yes, one exactly. Of those and I enjoyed playing squash uh, for a period when I was in New Hampshire, which is like it, squash is like racquetball. Only the ball doesn't bounce as much. You really got to you really got to hit that ball if you want it to get any action off the wall. But. I love this scene so much, just the way it's shot, <laughs> because it's. he says, 
okay, we're going to take care of this pesky investigator for you. It kind of picks up where it left off last week. And then it's like, all right, want to play one more game, you bastard. Okay. And then it cuts into like slow-mo. Like we're going to see like a cool slow-mo game of racquetball. But immediately the first shot is... A close-up shot of the floor. He goes to bounce the ball, but the ball just kind of hits his foot a little bit and goes rolling. But it stayed in slow motion. And then for the next 45 seconds or whatever, it's this beautifully shot slow-mo game of racquetball where they are just terrible. It, It might be my favorite. Well, I don't know. There's a lot of favorite scenes in this, but it is really beautiful. It's like the first shot just, I think, just like hits Tom Tavner in the gut or something. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> like, it's just so uncoordinated and, and kind of beautiful. Yeah, I'm with you. It's not what you're expecting uh, based on, you know, how these... I, I feel like ra- these these racket sport games have become such a trope because it's both active, but it lends itself to conversation. Because what's always happening mm-hmm. is something's always being kind of hashed out or yeah. discussed. And then you have, you know, intermittently a ball flying somewhere and someone trying to hit it. It's like a great it's a great backdrop for a conversation because you have something going on, but it's still normal that people would be talking. As opposed but to basketball. Guy, like you're not going to be like right. playing. Well, I mean, I guess maybe there's the trope of maybe one on one basketball. By the way, they, I've seen that scene, too, and it does not ring true at all. Now, I don't actually play racket sports. Um, so I don't know. Maybe maybe that's not what happens when people are playing squash. Maybe people are just like or, or racquetball. Maybe they're just you know, so tired they can't even talk. But I can tell you that when they try to do that in a basketball scene, I'm always like, bullshit. <laughs> Nobody's having... It just does... The mechanics of the game don't even work that you can really talk to someone. There'll be a scene where someone will have a ball in their hand and they're being guarded by someone and they're holding the ball above their head like about to pass it, but they're also talking to the person guarding mm-hmm. them. And I'm like, I promise you that would never happen. You would get... Both players would be kicked off their teams for incompetence. Yeah. Because it'd be like... Talk about this stuff later, dudes. We're trying to play basketball. Um, But what happens when the guy dies is, uh, as you already mentioned, he is now not able to continue running interference. So Agathe gets her orange thingy that's important. And uh, and so, you know, she gets that in Chicago. And now she's on her way uh, to interview uh, Dennis McClellan at McMillan. Now, I have – I don't want to be – I don't want to, like, keep, I guess, sort of... Nitpicking? Uh, or complaining at a... Per- I don't I don't want to keep whinging, or I, sometimes I misuse whinge. I don't want to keep complaining about this thing, but I have to tell you that I am not coming around on the Tom Tavner topic. I was really put off by the conversation between Tom and Edward. I, and it, it, to me, confirmed... Maybe not uh, Maybe not that Tom's inept, which was one thing that I was saying earlier. Maybe I need to kind of like – maybe I need to revise that. It's not necessarily that he's inept, although he did basically orchestrate the money going to the wrong person, which is – and to his credit, he admits that in that sort of debrief video. But it's more just like, bro, have some thought for your kids. His son is saying, I'm supposed to spend this weekend with my son. And by the way, we know that Tom Tavner knows – it's Edward's son because he says at one point to um, uh, to John, do you think that's his kid, right? Like, mm-hmm. So it's like it's not like – I think he's in on the, what's going on here. And I was really bummed out by that scene because I felt like you're telling your kid – you're basically putting your kid in harm's way. And when he's asking you questions about it, your, your answer to him is, I told you I was going to ask a lot from you. It's like that to me is a non-answer. 
Can I actually play that scene? Uh, because then yeah, what he says after that is is even more. Because I thought of you during this scene too, knowing uh, that you're good. It's working. You're kind of <laughs> you're pretty anti Tom these days. The physicist's wife is from a strict sect. She's never left her home in her life without a male escort. She bought a plane ticket to Luxembourg. One ticket, no escort. She's going to get the money. And... And what? What do you... What do I do? You help John. Yeah, I mean, of course. I'm gone. I just... I don't, I... What is your reluctance, son? What? No, I don't, I don't have one. I... There's... Alice had asked me what John does, and I realized that I don't even know, really. I... So how can I... Don't you have guys, like trained guys for this? I said I was going to ask a lot of you. I'm also going to ask you not to ask me any more questions, Edward. And then Edward just acquiesces, and that's the end of the scene. I got to say, I think they do a good job of showing Tom in scenes where he's by himself watching the news, realizing that like this is a dire threat to the state of the world right. that he is facing, and he is freaking out about it, and he is just pulling every lever he can. Unfortunately, because he's working in gray areas of the law, and this isn't an official mission on the books with the CIA, he has to use his sons. And so, I don't know. I still see it as Tom is a good guy who's in a really tough place, and he also is trying to protect I don't know, protect everything by not giving his sons too much information. But I also understand why hearing that kind of sharp tone when he says, like, I'm not going to answer any more of your questions. And like, what is your what is he what what is your hesitation, son? That isn't exactly the best parenting, probably. I mean, I guess on some level I have to begrudgingly give him credit because it would be he's sending his own sons in sort of to the front lines of this. Whereas because part of me is like, dude, send somebody else. I mean, I even I feel like Edward's going, don't you have people that are trained for this? Yeah. Don't you have non Beastie Boy fans that (laughs) have spent time preparing for this exact kind of thing? But I guess you could say that to his credit, he is sending his own sons to do this work as opposed to sending somebody else to the front lines because he's less emotionally connected to them. So in that way, I guess he's actually being somewhat ethical. Let me read, if I can, an email that listener uh, Lewis sent in, or maybe it's Louie. Uh, your middle name is Lewis, but it's the easier kind because it's L-E-W-I-S, no, right? No. Oh, wait. No. Um, L-O-U-I-S. This is how your middle name is spelled? L-O-U-I-S. Yes, sir. Who decides Lewis? Your parents said we're going with Lewis? Uh, when I was five, they made me fight a chicken. If the chicken won, mm-hmm. I was Louie. If I won, I was yeah. going to be Lewis. I kicked that chicken's wow. ass. Take that. Um, okay, well, this I guess we're going to go with Lewis on this. Uh, Lewis, on the subject of uh, Tom Tavner, says, um, I want to defend the actions of – I can't defend the actions of Tom Tavner from an ethical or parental perspective, but I will take a defense of his competency. Uh, as Luke has besmirched him in that area. What is an intelligence officer supposed to do? He or she is supposed to get others to do things for them, things uh, they likely wouldn't normally do, such as to get them to tell secrets and betray the trust of others. That's what an intelligence officer in the field of human intelligence is supposed to do. Uh, They need to find a lever, some... uh, Let's see, sorry. I printed this out, by the way, in, like, size... This is I have this email on the head of a pin right now, and it is uh, turns out way too small, even for my relatively strong eyes. Um, In the past, this was known as mice, money, ideology, sex and ego, although now it's normally known as mice. 
sex is changed to compromise. <laughs> so now you can't mise them, but you can mice them, apparently. Uh, Tom Tavner is very good at working those levers and on uh, on John and to a lesser extent on Edward. Is this a good thing as a parent? Nope. Is he showing great competency as a spy? Yup. So that's that's uh, Lewis's thought on the matter. It, uh, I actually I, I I think maybe I agree with him. I don't know. So, which is a total about face for me. Sorry, I know you're trying to talk, no, Andrew, but I just want to quickly say that's a total 180 for me from what I was saying at the beginning of of the show, which was that I thought that um, he was a really shitty spy because he kept messing things up. Now I've just moved on to he's a really shitty dad. <laughs> right, and a racquetball player. Um, so two out of three. And it is my understanding that he cannot employ anybody else for this. I mean, I could be wrong, but when Edward says, like, don't you have, like, trained professionals? I mean, I think it's it's been my understanding, maybe I've just taken it for granted, that, like, literally his sons are the only people who can do this job. Because, again, it's under the radar. It's not an official mission. He's literally in his head trying to save the world as we know it. So that's why he's being kind of tough on Edward there and giving him tough love because he's his only option and also to protect both the boys the less information he gives them the better just do what you're told so it's almost kind of like having a really tough drill sergeant who maybe you hate uh, in basic training but it turns out he's drilling things into you uh, via training that will save your life uh, down the road but anyway if it turns out that oh he could have used professionals then this whole thing wouldn't make any sense at all I guess, although there are some people looped in because you have that – I again, I, I, the, the just the small little details in this show uh, kill me and the character choices. The guy who is the sort of – I don't know what you describe his role as, but he's the guy that's supposed to kind of outfit John with money and his apartment furnishings and his mission. It's kind of his, you know – uh, it, the the penny to his uh, Mister Ga- uh, Inspector Gadget or something. That guy is so funny and passive aggressive. Uh, did they know jujitsu? Did they know jujitsu? Right, right. Like it's so important to him that he was right about the jujitsu thing. And this guy's just such a little asshole, and he can't even get him a chair in the room. But he's but he's he's gloating over the fact that he accurately predicted jujitsu because of them being Brazilian. Um, I love that detail of that character, and also that. So that guy's in on it, I guess, is my point. So this is that's true. I know what you're saying. It's un, it's pretty under the radar, but it's somewhat on someone's radar because it is. I think. I mean, it's sanctioned at whatever weird black ops level that it's sanctioned at, right? Yeah, I suppose so. I always got the impression that. Um, I mean, obviously, you're right. There are a couple of support people involved because I think that the. Glasses guy is the second support person we saw, I think, in episode oh, one. Okay. Didn't we see a different guy? I could be wrong about Maybe. that. Maybe. That also could just be they made episode one and then moved on and because this is going to be the main kind of point of contact. But I always got the impression that this was, even as far as CIA levels concerned, that uh, Tom sort of was doing something on the very edges of authorized and therefore kind of only had one shot, was supposed to take care of it things go haywire now he's in deep because i don't think that john necessarily is on the radar of the cia or has the protections of the cia although you're right by pointing out that support guy who can't get him the chair i guess belies that a little bit yeah um okay so other things uh, going on that jumped out to me uh i thought it was smart of them to use words with friends yeah. as a mm-hmm. <laughs> subtle communication 
device. Uh, I know that your partner plays Words with Friends a lot. I guess we can't rule her out as a spy. Do not accuse to think her about. of that. She would not be caught dead playing Words with Friends. She plays online Scrabble on her phone. Uh, she looks down uh, on Words with Friends because it's really? not as... It, yeah, it's not as... I don't think I knew that Words with Friends is not Scrabble. I mean, it, it's a version of it, or it's a knockoff, but I didn't realize it wasn't literally Scrabble. Those are different. It's got looser rules, I believe, and oh, I believe Gen- Genevieve wow. just takes her Scrabble very seriously, my friend. She's been playing the same... I mean, it's the official Scrabble you know, app. She's been playing it for... I mean, it must be, well, I feel like it's been more than five years now, and I mean hardcore. And the way when you're done, by the way, uh, thank you for tuning in to Macmillan Men, the way you look down at your phone and just check out Twitter every now and then, or if you're waiting in a line, mm-hmm. or you're waiting for your food or whatever, you look down at Genevieve's phone, she is always playing Scrabble in those moments. Wow, that's probably really good for her brain. Yeah, she's smart. Because I'm doing nothing. When I'm looking at my phone, I'm going, did... Uh, did somebody retweet a picture mm-hmm. of my dog lying down in the yard? Mm-hmm. Um, and when she's, she's going like, what's a five-letter word? I guess I'm describing it like it's a crossword puzzle now, which it's not. But she's she's doing something that's mentally stimulating. Long after you and I have lost our marbles, yeah. uh, she'll be she'll be somewhere sharp as a tack. Okay. Uh, I did think that was pretty smart, though. Also, I, I love the <laughs> – such a weird thing. So weird that you would think of this, but this idea that Steven is supposed to sort of rehabilitate through basically reenacting that scene from Big, yeah. where they play Hearts and Souls on the Robert Loja, I believe it's Robert Loja and and Tom Hanks in Big. Uh, it's such a genius idea for that to be. I mean, it's just so out. The term random gets overused in our society, but that is legitimately random to me that idea and i love it yeah and it's just so funny too it's just so tragic funny tragic comic when you know you think it's going to be a big moment for steven and then he just kind of like he gets a couple of notes out and then just kind of walks away and as he, he i mean he yeah. doesn't he do it full-on charlie brown big step back doesn't Eugene. his just yeah, big step back steven doesn't he like almost do a full-on like his entire spine just kind of like folds forward and he just kind of mopes off if i remember though and again i don't want to spoil too many things i f- when i saw that i was like oh this isn't how i remember the scene going but it's because i think that they come back to that don't they, they do yes and i think that's what's i mean they're setting us up for something you know for the plot to move forward with that it's a representation of kind of uh, you know stuff going on with steven's character but it's just again like i don't know if this was steven conrad or gil bellows by the way gil bellows who plays um the uh, Lawrence, person who's I think. N- yeah lacroix the person who's now in charge of Macmillan. I didn't realize this until uh, watching the show, but he is sort of is co-credited with Stephen Conrad for basically being the co. Um, I, I I think I don't want to say co-writer, but he's he's sort of like store. He's basically the co like I don't know creator of this show in some fashion. He plays a more pivotal role in the actual like creative side of the show than I realized. Oh, okay, I didn't um, know that either. Yeah, it just flashes on a title screen. Again, I can't think of the exact title page, but it's 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 sort of almost like co-writer or story co-created by or whatever for this episode. So I don't know if it was Gil Bellows or Stephen Conrad, but whoever was sitting there thinking, what would be a funny, interesting way for Stephen's rehabilitation to unfold in the sort of office space? The piano, giant piano mm-hmm. thing is just so perfect. It's mwah, chef's kiss. Um, 
And then uh, let's see. The other thing we already talked about was this. Well, okay. So the the the, we, the dynamic has been set up that John has to nail this Denon project if he has any hope of getting back onto the travel team and getting into Leslie's good graces. That scene unfolds where Leslie, but th- these people are these you know the Denon people are just so excited to meet Leslie because mm-hmm. he's such a legend, and of course that also it makes it embarrassing for him because he shouldn't be. He shouldn't be dealing with something at this low level, being that he's Leslie Claret. Right. And so and, and what happens is John, you know, all last episode, while he's doing all these other ridiculous <laughs> stunts and schemes, he's trying to memorize this ridiculous trying to patch speech. Ample. Yeah, this ridiculous techno jargon speech that Leslie fed him uh, in the last episode. And it, it would appear that they're walking into this meeting. John has memorized it, like specifically word for word. Like you were saying, I, I keep thinking of this. You were saying how when you um, have to do like some sort of a uh, what would you say, like an industry, industrial yeah, video? Exactly. And like you just have to spout out a bunch of words. You don't even understand what they mean. So it makes it harder to remember your lines. And he's doing this. He's ready to present. Then all the people from the other company come in. What's the name of the company again? The what? what uh, Denon. The Denon people are there. And they say, oh, no, uh, we don't use filters. And then suddenly he has We're to just. We're free. Yeah, we just have to improvise. And he obviously can't improvise. He's just basically memorized a bunch of sounds and so he says you know what i need to talk to leslie alone for a second please clear the room the customers uh seem a little put off by that and they leave and i want to play this scene here because i think this is kind of iconic patriot here this is where you get the line it's rote it's 101 as uh, leslie is just (laughs) increasingly um frustrated by john leslie do you mind taking the lead I don't want to... You don't want to what? I, I thought the whole thing was filtered. That's no big deal. It's 101. Yeah, I'm not... Uh, 101. 101. I'm not prepared to pitch for an unprocessed filter line. I'm sorry. John, what the fuck? That's rote. 101, man. <laughs> um. <sighs> Here's the thing. I was hired to run a division, and we employed you to help me, and you have serially failed to do that. You are burdening me, and you are disrupting the very important order of the way Macmillan operates. The Macmillan way. 101, man. And then he goes on to say, I started this company (laughs) when I was 24. And the big thing that comes out of this is, is he says, you're off the travel team. And the only reason John is doing any of this is so that he can get back to Luxembourg for, you know, world saving purposes. Yeah, Uh, I'm I am. I I knew this was going to happen at some point, and I don't uh, want to. I think I referenced this last week. I don't want a Ghostbusters style cross streams here, but I am also kind of concurrently watching Stephen Conrad's other show called Perpetual Grace Limited, and um, and uh, Kurtwood Smith is also in that show, and he is he plays a wildly different character, and I just want to I just want to celebrate the acting mm-hmm. of Kurtwood Smith. He's amazing. And he's amazing in both shows, and he is not—he's not Leslie Claret at all in uh, in this other show. And it's just—it's. I will say this: the downside is that my brain is getting slightly confused because a lot of the same actors are in both shows, and they're playing very different characters. That's the downside. The upside is 
my appreciation for uh, for these actors and their ability to to portray different things is is very high right now because I'm kind of watching them almost in like you know parallel tracks. But yeah, Kurtwood Smith is just incredible in this show. I mean, just um, amazing. And I'm actually avoiding that show for that purpose. You know me; my yeah, brain should. is bad. Like I can I can I can barely even get through this. And so. And when I say this, I mean this sentence. Uh, so mm. I really think that it'll well, you screw did it. with me. <laughs> I did. Did I wait? Did I have a period there though, or was it a comma? And it's still a run-on. We'll see. Uh, so I'm going to hold off until we get done watching both seasons of this again. Um, one thing. Speaking of my brain being bad, I mean, I guess the one part of the show that I continue to just kind of like, I don't know not fully grasp but just accept and not get too hung up on is exactly what's going on vis-a-vis the the physicist and the physicist's wife i mean we know that there's this woman the physicist who's coming from iran who is going to somehow believe she's the wife of the physicist right? i'm sorry yeah what did i say you said this woman the physicist oh i'm sorry this Uh, woman i'm not saying that i'm not saying that to uh to be annoying. I'm just no, trying no, no, to yeah. genuinely keep the character straight in my mind. She is not the physicist, right? She's the wife of the physicist. Exactly. And so I'm sorry okay. for because it's already confusing. I don't need to confuse things even more. But we know that she is making her way somehow eventually to where is the money? Amsterdam, right? No, no, no. I'm sorry. The money is in Luxembourg, right? I believe so. Yeah. So she's making her yeah. way to Luxembourg right now. She's in Egypt making her way there. There's a lot of kind of gray area from my understanding of how this all went down. I'm going to say something. I'm going to say this for the very last time. Um, I mentioned in both previous shows, I'm still unclear as to how John handed the bag of money to the wrong person, which really launched all of all of these secondary problems. Uh, and I asked if anybody wanted to email in and tell me. Um, I got an email from Megan. I actually cut her name off of this email, as I'm apt to do, but I'm pretty sure it was Megan. She says um, how the money got in the wrong hands i think that the bag man double crossed tom so john gave it to the right guy at least as far as tom was concerned but tom picked the wrong guy to give it to because he was misled um so that's a that's a good theory well that was i mean i had a feeling it was something along those lines um that just basically like somebody uh, somebody in there somewhere did a double cross so it's so that theory was that it's the the guy in the you know, Park, who picks it up from him when he's at the whatever that bench, that guy went rogue and decided to give it to the other people for whatever that reason. that's uh, Megan. If we're calling her Megan, that's Megan's theory. And sure. And I'll buy that. And so now I guess the money is there in Luxembourg, um, but it's in it's in the hands of like the quote unquote wrong side. So uh, so that is why the physicist's wife is heading there so that she can get the money and get it back to Iran. Why she's the proper person for that mission. I don't think it's ever explained. I My guess would be that it's because the physicist being on the move would be far too trackable. I mean, they think the, the assumption would be that, they, that they're not tracking the wife, which they are. Or maybe the physicist, because he's a controversial figure, I wonder if there are some – if he's not allowed to cross certain international boundaries or if it's too dangerous because if he's out in the world and he gets killed, then – that's a I don't I'm this is just me guessing now but I wonder if if they think that it's actually safer to send her and that no one will really notice it of course as we're going to learn as the show unfolds that's its whole own interesting thing <laughs> involving her first tastes of the west but yeah um, do you want to actually hear my theory on this I'm kind of just coming yeah, up with I this do. right now I think you know I think it's more of a plot device because I as okay. you're saying that I'm thinking yeah but 
the people who want this money, the people who are operating, is an entire organization that is about to be in power in Iran. Like the show makes it sound like there's only three people. Um, the the actual I'm I'm forgetting the guy's name, the person who's Cantor Wally, Cantor Wally, the physicist and the physicist's wife, and whoever this double crosser is who took the bag. Like it's so it's such as like you don't have anybody else in your organization <laughs> who can come <laughs> from Iran and do this like a spy. And I think what we're seeing the seeds of is kind of mirroring our side on their side. I think we're going to start to see more, it's all family, ah. right? And so whether or not right. it really makes sense in the real world, there's a kind of a, a poetic nature to this where everything that's happening on our side where it has to be family and it has to be kept close, I think that we're going to see that mirrored. Well, and again, that's another, that's a, to me another kind of charming element of this show is I'll, I'll keep making this reference, but it's like – and by the way, I met Kiefer Sutherland once, and he was lovely. So I don't know why I keep having to neg him, but the Kiefer Sutherland verse version of Patriot is it's not like family. That's just – it's not a it's not a mom-and-pop operation. It's like highly trained, you know, covert agents, and everyone's just like – everyone has sunglasses on and one of those little earpiece radio things in their ear, and they're wearing blue blazers, and they're being – it's like – that's that's one kind of show, and what's kind of fun about this show is – you're right. It's like a couple of different groups that are sort of the gang that can't shoot straight, and and this idea that even something like this kind of at some point maybe just comes down to a bumbling family trying to just get something done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's – so, so much more of an interesting way for this thing to unfold. So um, we have, I feel like – Three more big things, if you don't mind me just okay. declaring that. Nope. Uh, the three big things. If I'm I can giving lay you the up. baton. Okay, cool. Run. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bullet point them, and then we can go back to them. Number one, okay. the interview between yes. Aget and Dennis is yep. amazing. It is interwoven <laughs> with the next uh, plot I'm going to mention, which is duck hunting. John does go duck mm-hmm. hunting so that he can prove that he is a McMillan man. That is amazing, too. The way they intertwine those two storylines is just brilliant. And then we got to talk about halt dogs and how you and I are going <laughs> to get our hands on a halt dog. So what do you yeah. want to start with, the interview or the duck hunting? Uh, yeah, let's talk about the interview. Uh, let's go chronologically. Uh, although you're right, the interview and the duck hunter kind of overlapped. But let's talk about the interview. Dennis is... Being interviewed by a get because he's the one that's on her radar. John Lakeman isn't really on the radar yet. Uh, and so John is kind of trying to coach him up about how to do an <laughs> be interrogated. I mean, you just know as a viewer, even though you haven't seen that much of Dennis yet, you just know that there's no way this is going to work. And the conversation between uh, him and Aget is, is is just incredible. It's just it's it's just really masterfully executed. I mean, um, John tells him going into this, he's like, "Don't fidget, don't cough, just like be cool in there. Like, don't touch your face or right. something." And then the very very first scene, we see them in a conference room, a really cool conference room in the piping building because you can see all the pipe decorations in the wall, which is also really cool. Um, and He's he's coughing. We open up on the scene. They're sitting at a table together. He's not supposed to fidget or cough, and <coughs> he's coughing. Aget offers him a glass of water. He says, "I don't need I don't need water. I'm not going to cough. That these coughs don't count. The interview hasn't started yet. Oh these God, coughs so don't count." And she says, "How do you know you're not going to cough during the interview?" He says, "Let's just say that I really know myself." And then the scene ends with her saying, "Okay, let's get started." Then he goes. <coughs> And then they cut the scene right there. It is so perfect. Oh, 
It's great. I mean, he's just so bad at the being casual or not acting suspicious. But then kind of, you know, he's sort of pulling it off, pulling it off-ish. And then all of a sudden he – well, you mentioned this on TBTL, but there's the moment where he can't remember his wife's name, which just comes off as a little odd, makes him seem nervous. And then there's the part where he just – Apropos of, of not very much, he introduces John's name into the conversation. Yeah, yeah. she like, says, well, "What blue. were you doing? Like, what were you doing in the city?" I was just walking. Where were you walking? I was just strolling, taking in the city. Really, just taking in the city. Yeah, I loved it. It was just me and my friend John. He just introduces ah! John into it for no reason, and then you—the yeah. look he makes afterwards because he's still trying to right. be cool, but then he clearly makes the face of somebody who realizes they just stepped in it, but they can't, you know, show it. Yeah. The acting and the timing is just... I mean, it's literally perfect. You could not make these scenes any better. How about when he leaves and he does a little, like... Just, yes! Just a little fist bump, like, to just himself. a fist pull. Oh is like, God. wow, bro, you think you nailed that? Oh, and by the way... And then she uh, writes something down in her notebook. She sees it and then writes <laughs> I, down her notebook. I kind of rushed us past this, but as the, uh, the, the, the tape that we heard at the beginning of the show, uh, there's this also this just wonderful scene where Lakeman is trying to coach up Dennis and they're in Dennis's like kind of workout area of his house. And this also gets to the just like weirdness of Dennis and his like workout obsession and the fact that he told his wife they were going to work out. So they better work out some just so she hears the weights clanking. And then when he, you know, when he finds out they have X amount more time, he's like, sweet, we can do legs. He also mentions that he basically has nightmares about twins and then his daughters come in and you realize... <laughs> this is like he is basically terrified of his own family, it would appear. Yeah, his his family. Again, I guess this is a show about family. Like his family dynamic is very weird. Um, later on, we're going to see like he feels true affection, I believe, for his wife. We see him. I think it might be mm, season two. Right. He's in a place where he has to either confess something to her or he like, gets kinda, the herp or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's got to come clean or not. And uh, and you can tell like it. He he really does love his wife, yet he's got he's creeped out by his own children. John says anything kind of wig you out that I should know about before you go in this interview. He's like twins kind of freak me out. And then two seconds later, his twin daughters come down the stairs and say, "Daddy, come up in forty five minutes for dinner." He's like, "Okay." And come John is with speech- us, Daddy. He's just speechless. He's like, "Those are your kids." Like, and we're gonna find out that like he's got a very troubled relationship with his children because he's weird about twins. And, I mean, I think that that also kind of starts to begin to explain the Dennis character and why he's going along with all this stuff and, in fact, why he's so intrigued by it. And it's because he's his real life – I mean, you're right. He does really love his wife. Um, but it's like his – he's – like so many people are. I think he's trapped and bored with his real life. Like he's looking for something to shake shake things up. And so this becomes something to focus on. Um, and were he like, you know – more happily kind of integrated into family life, he probably would be like, no friggin' way I'm smuggling $170,000 uh, or giving you my pee or letting you stab me or, you know, like he would never go along with any of this, but it's like he's just looking for something to do, something to take him out of his reality, and this is as good as anything else. I also think the brilliance of um, the scene between the investigator and him is that, at least at this point... Again, tell me if you think I'm wrong about this, but we are seeing a battle of the wits, a showdown between the person who's proven to be the smartest person on the show 
and the yeah. dumbest person on the show. Like these guys <laughs> are complete opposites of each other. And while Dennis thinks he's killing it, he's failing so bad. And she's just sitting there taking it all in, just like stone faced. She is actually doing what he thinks he's doing with his face. I know she's so it's like it's intimidating to watch her on screen when she's dealing with just about anyone, but in particular, somebody of Dennis's mental mm-hmm. uh, level, because you're just like, oh, my God, this is not fair. This is definitely uh, not going to come out well for him. OK, so let's talk about uh, duck hunting. So this is where we start to also kind of get a little bit of. Uh, of of Gil Bellows, aka I always forget his name. It's is, is Lawrence it, um, Lacroix, I think. This is where we start to find out Lawrence Lacroix's deal a little bit. By the way, I'll mention that Lawrence Lacroix's kryptonite seems to be women. Yes. Remember when they're in Luxembourg and he's like calling, and I believe this may continue into the show, but it's like he's always calling, you know, sex workers mm-hmm. or trying to set something up. He's in love with this woman who doesn't respect his duck hunting ability and her boyfriend is making fun of him. And it's like it all revolves around women for him. Yeah, definitely. He's got fetishes that we're going to see later. Um, And I think we're even I think when he's on the phone, we just pass and we only hear a clip of the conversation in episode one. And he's calling, yeah, some sort of call girl service and and asking for some sort of special like it wasn't tickling, but I think it was like tickling with whips or something. You just hear a you just hear a little um bit of the conversation and so yeah he that's clearly like he is and he is married keep in mind his it's his mother-in-law who is i think chairman of the board of mcmillan he mentions that in the flashback scene oh, right. when um when leslie is asking to come back to mcmillan and he's saying you can come back but there's a ceiling you'll never be above you know regional director and uh, he says my uh, my mother-in-law on the board can't allow you to have more power than that because you're a liability because you were stealing from the company and so that's where we learn again it's a family affair so he is married but he's also a complete philanderer and that his motivation often is is sex and i i love the dynamic in the duck hunting there's like some the person who seems to be kind of leading the the duck hunting adventure, which is clearly something that has happened before. This is something that these McMillan men do. He's like this tough guy who's just like kind of negging everybody, but especially just talking directly down to Lawrence and his relationship who runs is, the company. He's the boyfriend of a woman. <laughs> I mean, he's basically talking down to his girlfriend's boss. I mean, and yeah. really talking down to him, too. And Lawrence is just like, he's just such a little turd. He just takes it. Yeah, he's just kind of taking it. And so when they get out, when they get out in the boat, because, of course, uh, John is trying. It's like John is so bad at interpersonal relations with Leslie. There's this scene where he's, what does he say? Like he's holding a beer behind him and he goes like, do you want a cold one or something? It's like the most awkward way to offer someone a beer. And it's just like, he's trying to like, he wants to be in Leslie's boat. He's trying to kind of like ingratiate himself to Leslie, but Leslie's like, you know, not having it. He, Leslie really doesn't like him at this point. And so he ends up in Gil's boat, which, or I should say in Lawrence's boat, which, of course, ends up being really positive because he's able to uh, show his prowess of killing ducks, which we got a little moment of him playing a song in his bedroom where he doesn't want to shoot ducks. Mm-hmm. So that's how we we know how he feels about that. 
and uh, and but he does he kills these ducks and then he's literally about to get fired. It's not even like oh we think he's going to get yeah. fired, but it turns out okay. Like no, like the Lawrence actually, Lawrence broaches the topic. He's like I'm out here yeah, because I want to tell fire you, him. I want to tell you how we can part ways peacefully. And then John kills these two ducks. He says that Lawrence can take credit for him, and now he's back in the good graces and he's back on the travel team. Yeah. So uh, much to Leslie's chagrin, obviously. So that is going to be happening. Aget is walking. I assume she's back at the end of the episode. She's back in in Luxembourg. It didn't look like Chicago to me anymore. This is a very boring just production thing. But I was, you know, the bridge in Chicago she's walking across. uh, I cross that bridge all the time. It's a bridge that goes over the Chicago River. It's right next to what are kind of called the corn cob buildings that are famous for being the cover of a Wilco record. Mm. I think they're called the Marina Towers, and um, they're circular, or you know, they're, they're these tall circular towers. And the bottom twenty floors are parking, which is crazy because you're basically parking your car. There's a thin cable between you and falling a hundred feet in the Chicago River. Mm. But she's walking. That's also famously a bridge where the Dave Matthews Band tour bus let go its poop once onto a boat of tourists that were passing under it. These are just dazzling deets <laughs> about that bridge. What? I'm just. Did you hear, did you hear no, that? No, I did not know about that at all. Yeah, the tour bus let go its like waste from the toilet. I think by accident. I don't think they tried to do this. Just something something went awry, and it went through this bridge, which is a metal bridge, so water and things can pass through it. And it went down and hit an open like when you take the architecture tour in Chicago. It's these these really cool boats that you sit out on the top of. Uh, and those people got hit with Dave Matthews Band shit. Wait is- a second. I think they did do it, or I think uh, I'm finding a headline here from the uh, Tribune from 2005. Matthews Band bus driver pleads guilty to dumping waste in a river. A driver for the Dave Matthews Band admitted Wednesday that he emptied his bus's septic tank over the Chicago River last summer, drenching passengers, drenching, <laughs> drenching passengers on an architectural tour with 800 pounds of human waste. That is a great lead story sentence wow um but she's walking on that bridge and i just was thinking to myself man they flew well i mean i guess because the she's supposed to be in chicago i guess this is how making tv works i was i I didn't say this was interesting although i do feel like the dave matthews detail did kind of (laughs) elevate this thing i just brought up i'm also chuffed that i had as many of the details right as i did because you know usually i'm wrong about this stuff but um I just thought to myself, did they have to shut that whole road down? I mean, there must have been a giant – like that bridge must have been closed for filming for the better part of a day to set up all of the cameras. And, you know, if they had the camera on um, like a, a dolly or whatever, like if it was a tracking shot, like just to get her walking on that one thing. And that's all. I mean, the, the interior stuff in Chicago could be anywhere. She's inside – you know, she's getting this orange envelope, but she could be anywhere. And like they went to Chicago, they flew down there. Now, maybe the show is shot in Chicago. I don't know. But it's like I was impressed by the fact that they went to Chicago, set up all of that gear to just film her walking on that bridge. They didn't have to do that. They could have cheated it somewhere. They could have shot it somewhere in Luxembourg and called it Chicago. And to be clear, like, we're talking about where she's walking earlier after she's gotten her orange ticket and slowly yep. she's walking yes. after Rochambeauing and then she gets that slow smile yep. on her face. Yeah. yeah. You know, uh, and more relevant to the story, yep. I think a little bit. Sorry, I'm not trying to neg you. But uh, nope. also oh. in, in that scene, I was thinking like I get such like 
I don't mean this in a sexist way, girl detective vibes from her. I don't mean female detective. I mean, she reminds me of an adult version of the kind of like story, like as a kid, you would read about a kid detective, like a little girl detective who's like... Like a Nancy Drew? Like a Nancy Drew kind of. She's like spunky. She's self-confident. She's proud of herself. And when and she's always serious, but when she's by herself, she'll allow herself a little grin because she won the day. There's something about her that evokes yeah. that. She is hyper confident, uh, hyper competent, and then she's also often underestimated in mm-hmm. certain situations on the show, and so and so she has to obviously present the most professional possible demeanor. But there's also an interesting scene where she's talking about how she was so nervous to use her English that she ends up not getting lunch because she's too nervous to try to order lunch in English, which is a kind of a nice little humanizing moment because she is so smart. And so driven that you kind of get this sense that she's almost like, uh, you know, like not human. And then you see that little scene and you're like, okay, she's still human. She's nervous about ordering lunch in English. Which isn't completely believable to me. I agree with because everything Because of how great English is. In yeah, the the show. yeah. Like I know that that's why they put that in. And I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Like trying to show that like she does have her, her weaknesses and that she is human. I think you need that in a character. I got to say, and again, I'm, I'm not trying to nitpick here, but it's like – if you can sit down with somebody in English in their country and interrogate them and tell when they're lying and do everything that goes along with those word games and mental games that go along with interrogating somebody, but you're a little nervous ordering from a sandwich artist at Subway, like that just didn't exactly scan for me. Maybe they should have picked a different way to demonstrate yeah, that she I would have preferred feels it. a little bit intimidated. Mm-hmm. Um and you know what they could have done? I don't know what purpose this serves me, just like making up an alternate version, but it could be more just the idea of like her wanting to be polite and Americans, you know, it could be some kind of line at the rental car agency and people are pushing in front of her and she's just waiting because she's trying to be, you know, thoughtful and courteous and not do the wrong thing. And meanwhile, she's just being taken. And there's ways they could have they could have demonstrated her nervousness maybe in, in, in I think you're right, in a way that was a little bit more believable. Um but okay, let's talk about uh, halt dogs. So, is the dog named Charlie? I was just going to say to you, I can't remember the dog's name. I think it is Charlie. My mind says Charlie. Of course, Charlie the Charlie the therapy dog that was uh, kidnapped from the guy, the cop who's guarding the evidence locker that Birdbath needs access to. Um, he uh, that's where the dog is stolen from. But I don't think that. Lakeman really gets the kind of what the purpose of the dog is until he's in that, like, I guess, bar or whatever. Is that also where they go after work? Is that all the same place? I think so. That's kind of how odd. It's like a 50s themed, like, restaurant that they're in. Yeah, a little bit. I'm looking at the shot now of this final shot. It does seem like a different bar. Like when they're at the bar, it seems more warm and cozy. In this shot where you see the whole restaurant, it looks a little bit more like a dive bar sort of. It's kind of got those cheap metal chairs with uh, plastic uh, coating on them. And uh, But the bar looks like it's kind of – it's either after hours or I, I don't know. It just it, it looks a little – not like it's hopping right now, and John is sitting there with with let's say Charlie. That sounds right to me. And the um, the a woman who works there, who's like I don't know, moving a box from point A to point B. It's all about the structural dynamics of flow. Um, well, really, it is. Asks if this is his halt dog, H A L T, which stands for hungry, well, angry. What is the elegant, lonely, or tired? 
What I think is kind of interesting is before, what, first thing she says to him is, "Is that your dog?" Mm-hmm. And he says, "And he says we're just hanging out." We're just hanging I think out. he says, something. "Yeah, yeah." That's like good. that's such a Lakeman answer because he doesn't want to lie. It's not his dog, but so that's how he describes it. And then she explains what it's for. And boy, if there's anybody who's ever needed a dog like this, other than the guy who he stole it from, it's Lakeman. Like this is exactly what he needs in his life. And of course, that we sort of see that play out. In when he gets back home, and oh my god, when the dog like jumps up next to him on the airbed, come on! I know. I really, I was, I have a borderline halt dog. I have a yellow lab who's, you know, very cuddly and follows me everywhere, and like, you know, like I already have a dog that do, does most of this, and I was like, I got to get a halt dog. Yeah, I gotta, like Rudy, you you're gonna have a sister or brother, and they're just gonna be there to emotionally regulate me. And all, I mean. And I mean, it's set up so perfectly. She's kind of, you know, it's kind of exposition when she says, you know, mm-hmm. halt dog. It, you know, this is for people in who are dealing with PTSD, and if they're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, the dog will try to somehow help or mitigate that or give a warning of it. Because if if these people are all H A L T all at once, then they'll crack. Is I think how she mm-hmm. puts it. And then not only um, in the next scene when we see uh, John laying down on his air mattress, the dog comes over. He doesn't just snuggle with him he drops uh, pop tarts on his chest and he's saying i can oh. see that john is hungry like john clearly is somebody who needs this dog he is showing all of the symptoms of being a broken man and this dog is trying to you know he's just now trying to protect him yeah i mean what i find what i find really interesting is that he then takes the dog back Mm-hmm. He returns the dog to its rightful owner, which is kind of that also, I think, is a snapshot of 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 John Lakeman. I know that's not his real name, but whatever. Mm-hmm. It's that because he needs this dog like he is friggin traumatized. And honestly, like it's sort of like other than when he's with his wife. I've said the only time he ever smiles is when he's with his wife. This is he may not be smiling, but you finally think he has an emotional connection with something right now. Mm-hmm. And you kind of expect him to just be like, well, now it's you and me. We're in a buddy film. We're in those Liberty Mutual Limu the emu ads and we're going to go fight crime together and like nope he sends the dog back to its owner which is an incredibly I mean first of all it's morally the right thing to do but it's interesting because I was fully expecting him to just basically be like I need this dog this is my dog now me and Charlie till the end. Yeah, you mentioned maybe we should do a uh, a Lakeman smile watch uh, at the end of every episode <laughs> or a smile count. I love because it. You pointed out that um, I think it was last episode. You pointed out that the only time you see John smile is when he's talking to his wife or maybe listening to his wife on one of the recordings. Um, but we also see one of those very rare um, John smiles when I think he's driving with the dog. I can't remember where it was, but the dog brings a smile out on him. I'm like there. There it is, mm. man. And there's something about seeing a guy, and I know I keep saying this, drink every time I say keep watching the show because it's going to get more intense. But um, as things move forward and John becomes more and more, let's say, broken or downtrodden um, on the rare instances that you see a smile, it is am- amazingly, almost overwhelmingly emotional for the viewer because you get so yes. few smiles from him. Yeah, the show does a great job of having you really identify with this guy who doesn't actually have a lot of lines. I thought mm-hmm. about this the other day. You know, he's mostly just sort of quietly staring into the middle distance or diving off a roof. You know, it's like he doesn't 
do, he doesn't do a ton of dialogue, and yet you really start to kind of identify with him and empathize with him. And you're right when he when he just gets a moment to just feel some sense of happiness. You as the viewer, it's very it's it's extremely affecting on on the viewers as well. Yeah. Um. So going forward, uh, I get it looks like she's back in uh, Luxembourg. Good catch and on that, by the way, because she's just oh, yeah. walking down the street, and I wasn't paying that close attention, but you can just notice from the buildings around her that she's back in Europe. I'm guessing. I think you're um, right, because I'm looking at it now, and these look, like, um, these look like European buildings. And she's uh, she's also got now, she's got intel. Well, she has the 700 de Champlain, right? Is it 700 or 70? Uh, Whatever that address yeah. is. I wrote it down somewhere. She's got the address that, 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 okay, there you go. Um, she's got the address. She knows that John Lakeman. She's she's got the name John now, thanks to Dennis's dingus uh, interview technique. And so she's got, and she's got this orange thing. Which I do, do we know what the orange thing actually entitles her to? My guess is it is going back to the color coded tickets that you get via Interpol. Mm-hmm. And I looked it up. Yeah. Orange does I, not indicate what you would think necessarily based on the show. But she had to get the blue ticket so that she could mm-hmm. investigate in a foreign country. And now things are heating up, so she gets she needs the orange one. I thought it said writ of something. They were calling it a writ. The orange writ is what they were calling it, I think. Yeah, say, it's like writ it of, and I, I feel like it might be, well, I don't I don't want to guess, but yeah, it was, that's, I was trying to pause and read the language on there, and I really couldn't, but I, I, I think it's a writ that might compel, might allow her to basically get somebody like Lakeman back to Luxembourg if she needs to or something, but uh, I don't know. I'm guessing at that, but she's got that. She's obviously hot on the case. And Lakeman is back on the travel team, so those two are looking like they're going to intersect. And um, yeah, I guess I don't have a whole lot else to say about this episode. What? Um, anything you want to add before we? Before we well, wrap up? this is such a bummer of a place to end it, but um, I think it's notable that John did not want to go duck hunting, and he does go duck hunting. And at the end, it's a it's a huge victory for him. Like Dennis is right; he needed to get out there. He was able to like he was literally seconds away from getting fired. He's a, he ends up saving the day by um, killing these ducks and letting Lawrence take credit for it. But then we get a shot that's a very mm. impactful shot, I think. Um, they're all in the, yeah. you know, in the, in the truck going home later. And we start by seeing Leslie's face. And you, you, Leslie has never been so furious. And, and I think part of that is, I think it's twofold. I mean, Leslie clearly doesn't like John. And for good reason, you know, like given Leslie's past or ignoring the past. It doesn't matter. John is not a good employee. Um, And we think that that's, for the first two episodes, we think that that is the most of his frustration with John. It's just that John isn't good at his job. But also knowing that that Leslie is a rock star and at his age was a rock star at his job and it all went away and now he's got this, you know, he just can never regain the respect that he thinks he deserves and the the parking space is symbolic of that um and then at the very end when lawrence is kind of like yeah he's back on the travel team and and leslie says no he's not he can't travel and he says that's not a divisional decision that's an executive decision Mm -hmm. so now not only is john just annoying him and being a bad employee but he also represents his own failure like now it's twofold and we see a shot of right. Leslie's face in the truck right after that scene and he is 
he is so angry. He is saying so much with his face there. It's almost hard to look at. And uh, then we see John's face, and it's his usual kind of, you know, broke dog looking face. But then we see the ducks that he killed on the floor of the truck, and one of them is still breathing a little bit. And John, you just know, this is a man who has to kill people for a living or for the fate of the world. Yet seeing what he did to these ducks is also killing him a little bit. I had that written down, and I couldn't remember. I watched this kind of late last night, so it was like... And then I went right to sleep. So some of it didn't really stick to mm-hmm. my brain. I had written down duck breathing WTF. Yeah. And then when I went back and re kind of scanned through today, I was like reminded of what that scene was. It's so intense. It's tough. I also have like really intrusive animal empathy to the point where like I just saw this news story today that there's something cougars somewhere or have I don't mean, you know, women of a certain age. I mean, the actual animal I are having problems. And they're they're putting out the the whoever it is the wildlife service was putting out videos like releasing videos that were like recorded on wildlife cameras of these injured or these cougars that are sick hoping I guess to sort of figure out what's wrong with them or that people might be able to give their thoughts on why this is happening I couldn't even watch the video mm-hmm. of like a because I knew there was going to be a cougar that's in a bad way so all of which is to say that duck scene just. It really gutted me. <laughs> mm-hmm. And actually, do you mind, just so that we don't have to end on that note, can I just share one more email that I got from listener Bill Please. that I thought was really interesting? Uh, way back in episode one, way back in episode mm-hmm. one, when we were doing our Mr. Ed impressions. Way. Yes, that was a wild time. <laughs> I remember we used to have to smear peanut butter on your <laughs> teeth right. to get you to look like you were talking. <laughs> That's right. I don't even want to know what you did with the carrots. Um, uh, I said that those opening credits, which are portrayed as kind of like found footage sort of, of you know, shaky handheld camera stuff of, of John and his brother Edward as kids, I had said that they, they must be VHS tapes. And you said, no, they're high eight. You know, I thought that High 8 was an older style. I thought that that meant it was film from the 70s. And I was like, no, this must be like more modern, like VHS. Well, obviously, I didn't understand that High 8 is actually is something that came. <laughs> you knew this. We were just, I didn't know this. It came after VHS. And I got this interesting email from Bill who says, I'm a filmmaker, so these are details that I catch. And while there may be some VHS footage mixed into the intro sequence, and I think uh, you're right that we're supposed to see those images as John and Edward playing in their youth, there's also at least some super 8mm and other small gauge home movie film formats in there too. Tom asks Edward about <laughs> Meemaw breaking his Sony VX3. That was a high eight handicam circa the mid 90s i went looking for some technical details of that of that title sequence i couldn't find anything i actually wonder if it was created new or compiled from actual home movies the patriot season two title sequence was created by the cinematographer of perpetual grace ltd according to steve Mm. conrad's twitter feed but there's no info on how the first season sequence was made that i could find so i actually aside from me just correcting the record because i doubt many people remember that i just love bill geeking out on on the um format of these intros you know it's funny I should have known that just like – I should have picked that up right away because I used to have a Sony – This they're talking about a Sony VX3. I used to have a Sony VX1000, which I shot a documentary on, uh, which was the, the documentary I made about those um, – uh, about the, the family band called mm-hmm. the Trachtenbergs. And uh, that, that camera was near and dear to my heart. And so you'd think I would, and that one was digital. Now I don't know, I, I don't know enough about the difference between the VX1000 and the VX3. But as I'm just looking at a picture of it, it's taking me 
way back. By the way, did you see that somebody was tweeting at us? They found some uh, dirt bikes or some kind of motorbike yeah. type thing for sale that are not unlike the ones the kids are riding. At least they look kind of similar that we need to get for our uh, maybe the opening sequence of this show. Should, Should we, we do a trailer it? where we reenact the opening <laughs> of Macmillan Men? But it's you and I, forty-three-year-old men. Excuse me, the, uh, the 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 opening scene of Patriot. That's what the show's called. But should we do should we do our version where we ride motorbikes and we do a jig and then we do all the stuff they do on on the Patriot uh, intro? Can you imagine if I was able to pull a scam where not only do I finally get my dirt bike late in life, but I get mm. the company to pay for it? Do you think that would do you think our sick. our boss Mike the Res Resler would sign off mm-hmm. on that? Probably. He seems to be very open to our shenanigans. He does. All right. I'll, you know what? It's best I, to just to... ask forgiveness than permission, so I'll buy these now. I'm sorry that I sound distracted, but I'm looking up how much a Sony VX1000 gets even to this day on eBay. It's still getting $600. And that yeah. – shout out any, – anybody yep. knows Faye Canale's I whereabouts? I was going to ask you. Didn't somebody walk off with your yes. camera and you never I got over it? I loaned it to my friend Faye years <laughs> ago because she was trying to get into doing improv and she wanted to make a video. And I loaned her my VX1000. And she never gave it back. And I actually, it's kind of on me. I never tracked her down. And then I, at some point, was like, yeah, well, those things, what are they worth? $600. Yeah, I'll get Faye, you out of a few jams. That, could, that, that cash could really get me out of a couple of jams. Faye, get at me with my Sony <laughs> VX1000, please. And I think that's the important thing about this right. show is it's a way for me to get my hands back on old video equipment that I used to own. And for me to expense motorcycles. Everybody wins, except for the listeners. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. That, I think, should probably do it. Thank you, everybody, for listening to uh, this show. Next week, uh, we'll be back with another episode of McMillan Men. So we will see you then. Keep things double great. With every move he makes, another chance he takes, odds are he won't live to see Secret agent man, secret agent man They've given you a number and taken away your name That's rote, one-on-one, man